Thank you for joining us for today's Family Law Now live presentation on divorced and separated parents, back to school tips, tricks, and common disputes. We appreciate all of you being here today. Just want to take a few moments here just to do some introductions, let you know what's on the agenda. Uh, today, Russell is joined by three of our associate family lawyers at the firm. We have Carolyn Warner, Gia Williams, and Aliza Miller. They will be discussing the following common family law issues that arise with divorce and separated parents and the nuances of navigating them during the back to school season. So first off, we have no agreement on enrollment and what to do. Status quo, notice and self-help. Urgent motions. Voice of the child and best interests of the child. Post-secondary expenses and child support during post-secondary education. And they will also be sharing case studies and some of their experiences. And we'll also reserve some time for Q&A from our audience members. It's now my pleasure to briefly share a bit about our team before we get into the content. So first we have Carolyn, who is a fully trained collaborative family lawyer and is one of the junior managing associate lawyers at our firm. Carolyn has been practicing family law exclusively for over 10 years since her call to the bar in 2011. She has a knack for developing creative resolutions unique to each client's situation, and she is committed to providing her clients with empathy and sound advice and prides herself on approaching all cases with an analytical and tenacious mindset. Next, we have Gia Williams, who is an associate family lawyer with us. With over a decade of solid litigation experience, she prides herself on being able to navigate challenging situations to create dynamic and sustainable solutions for all of her clients. She is passionate about helping families create child-focused parenting plans, and Gia has spent over 10 years as legal counsel with a child welfare agency, where she practiced child protection law dealing with complex and highly emotional cases. She has also worked on cases that have gone to the Ontario Court of Appeal, the Divisional Court, and the Supreme Court of Canada. Next, we have Aliza Muller, who is also an associate family lawyer at our firm, where she represents clients in all areas of family law. She strongly believes that most family matters can reach a resolution through collaborative approach, and she assists clients in reaching a customized outcome based on their specific family law needs and goals in an empathetic and cost-efficient way. Before joining our team, she worked at a large global Bay Street firm, where she managed global client portfolios and large large-scale litigation files as a legal project manager. So before I tell you a little bit more about Russ, um, we also want to get to know our audience as well. So first pull up we have is tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm just going to put this up here um, and then we'll give you a few moments to answer that. Let's go so to an next question. Shannon, before you talk about me, let's go to an audience question because one just came in. Can a father okay, sounds not good. If can a father who's not a custodial parent with court order to pay child support refuse to pay his portion because he wants the mother to watch over the kids and she's working full time? Uh, great question. Thank you for sending that in hot off the hot off the press. Who wants this one? I, I think I know what my take would be, but um, Liza, what do you think? Can you refuse to pay a court order for daycare? No, you can't refuse to pay a court order. You can appeal it if you have grounds to appeal, but you can't refuse to pay the court order. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's not a suggestion, right? It's, it's, it's a order. Right. Okay, go ahead, Janet. I just want to get that question in before uh, you guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, and um, thank you so much um, to our audience member for sending that in. Keep them coming. We love love to hear from all of you. 
Uh, so a little bit about Russell. He is the founder and senior partner at our firm. And with nearly or over 25 years of experience, he uses his knowledge and expertise to surface clients in all aspects of family law and helps them in coping with the difficulties of separation and divorce, the division of assets such as homes and pensions, and the calculation and enforcement of child and spousal support. He uses his experience to create unique solutions for each client to enable them and their families to move forward and supports them through the transition of divorce and separation. Russell has also written four books on separation and divorce and is a fully trained collaborative practice lawyer. He speaks at conferences on collaborative practice, marketing, technology, and the law. So now I'll let you take that away, Russ. Yeah, I want to thank you, Shannon. You make this look so seamless. So thank you for all the hard work you do behind the scenes. Uh, especially thank our audience for joining, for joining us today. Please put your uh, questions in. Uh, we love getting questions from the audience. Please participate in the polls. It helps us understand who our audience is and helps us direct our conversation. And we're sharing cases at the end and more stories. I've got a great one. So there's your hook if you want to stick into the end and find out. Uh, this particular case, I had four firsts in my career. And I, I was probably 15 uh, years into it. And four new things happened to me in one case. In one, in one afternoon, I went home and said, wow, what the hell just happened there? But okay. Let's see who our audience is. All right, family lawyer practicing. All right, you're in the right spot. Thank you for joining us. A lawyer in a different profession. So that was 73%, 7%, different field, 4%. Going through a separation and divorce, I hope this helps you uh, get the kids back to school in a few weeks. Have a loved one going through and you're helping them. That's great, 5%. Law student, 2% and other, but let's make a start. So, um, I think we might have one more poll here. No, no agreement or enrollment in what to do. Yeah, we have another poll, uh, a real quick one, and then we're gonna get into the subject matter. So if you can't agree on where this children are to go to school, what do you do? And while we're uh, giving the audience maybe 90 seconds to provide the response, uh, Carolyn, I've got a question for you that came in. My child has been accepted to an expensive university. Can I make the other parent pay? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that's going to come down to looking back at uh, if there's an agreement, uh, whether or not um, there's a separation agreement that outlines how post-secondary expenses would be covered. Also, or if there's a court order, I think that's your starting point. Um, it's always important to remember when it comes to university expenses. Yes, typically they're seen as uh, what we call as a Section 7 expense. But it still has to go through an analysis on, you know, whether or not that expense is considered reasonable um, and whether or not the parties can afford it. So there still is an, an, an analysis that has to go into it, looking at both parents' income, looking at any contributions um, from a child, whether that's coming from scholarship or it's coming from bursaries um, or et cetera, like part-time earnings. Um, and then uh, go on from there. And this one comes up a lot. And I have so many fun in the past, like, you know, kids get accepted to school. Usually, I don't know what it is, but the U.S. schools are pretty pricey <laughs> or any of the schools overseas. Um, and that does come up a lot. Um, uh, my opinion is that kids of, you know, separated um, parents, they, I think they do better <laughs> than kids that uh, have their parents together in terms of getting yeah. funding for school. You're right. Even Canadian professional schools, I don't know, law schools are probably up to 30, 40. I don't even know how much. It's crazy. But I think you got to put it in context, right? If the parents are professionals, 
and earn a high income, then yes. But I guess the analogy I would draw is, you know, you separate and now all of a sudden a parent wants to put uh, the child in horse camp, that, you know, $10,000 horse camp, and they've never done that before. But if they're, you know, that might be unreasonable, but if they're going to university and they've got accepted and there's agreement, I think you're right. They're probably, uh, it's going to be an obligation to pay based on, you also have to look at the incomes as well, right, of the parents. Might be paid proportionately and not equally. It all depends. So let's see what um, our audience thinks about going to school. Uh, follow the order of the agreement, 77%. That's right. Uh, rush to court. Well, we'll be seeing that probably in a week or two. 17% uh, came in for other and 6%. You can put that in the chat box. But no agreement or court order, Carolyn. Um, what should families and lawyers be thinking and doing about this? Yeah, so I think important when you're looking at um, if you don't have an agreement and you're trying to figure out what to do with enrollment for kids going to school, it's important to remember that this is going back to uh, decision-making responsibility. And that falls under that, head, that category of uh, under the education. So I think your first step really is to review if there's any court orders, if there's any separation agreement in place or even temporary orders to figure out if there is something spelled out on who can make that decision, whether it's a solo parent or if it's a joint um, decision-making authority on that decision that has to be made. If there is no agreement or there's no court order, I think the first step really is to try and contact uh, the other parent um, there's always uh, an emphasis to try alternative dispute resolution or negotiations before jumping straight off into court. In fact, we have a professional obligation to do that um, and see whether or not if it's an issue. Um, in Ontario, at least, it's important to keep in mind that typically the child um, should be registered in a school zone like where at least one parent lives. Um, so that's your first starting point. And then if you can agree, um, I think the best bet really is to try negotiations. So there's a few options you can try with negotiations. You can do just directly, you know, parent to parent. You can try negotiations, you know, uh, parent to lawyers or lawyer to lawyer. There's the options of uh, mediation arbitration. There's also collaborative family law. Um, and then there's also the consideration of court. Uh, if court is the ultimate route, I know we'll get to motion litter. I think the best tip really would be is that book the motion as far as advanced as possible. Um, you don't want to wait until, you know, the end of August uh, to try and, and bring a motion um, because then you'd have to most likely wouldn't get a date prior to the start of school. And then you'd have to be arguing that it's an urgent motion. Um, arbitration is a good option as well. I you know one of our colleagues recently did like an interesting arbitration and it was uh, just writ uh, the decision was made only on written materials. They just sort of submitted briefs on it and the arbitrator made a decision and it came back in written format. And um, I think that was a pretty cost efficient way to do it. Um, only thing to keep in mind with arbitration is that you're paying, you know, the arbitrator effectively because they're a private judge and then you all, the client would also be paying their legal fees. Um, and the motion, the risk really is, it usually is in one hour motion, which means that you've got 20 minutes to explain all your points to this judge in 20 minutes. And the judge just only has that amount of time for the lawyer to argue your case and read the materials 
um, which is a bit scary in my opinion. Um, you're sort of leaving it to such a limited amount of time to to make a decision um, on your and a child's future. Yeah, and uh, the judge is never going to meet your child or interview the child, and you're just leaving it up to a complete stranger, right, Carolyn? Yeah, that's true. My take would be it depends on the age of the child as well, right? So if you have a child that's already been in school and you just have a dispute over the summer, it's likely the status quo is going to continue. Uh, but the tough ones are the younger children when it's their first time going into school. Uh, then I think you're probably going to look at jurisdiction, whether the parents reside in the school district or what's the reason, what's the basis of the disagreement. So I really like your idea about maybe mediating it, collaborative practice. You know, you could potentially get a family professional in to help draft the parenting plan and with the decision maker. Depending on the age of the child, you may want to get a voice of the child report. Maybe the child's got an opinion if it's a, he or she's a young teenager and uh, maybe wants to go to school with their friends and one parent might be trying to move them to a different area. But what's your take on this, Gia? Any comments before we move on? Um, no, I totally agree with Carolyn. Um, and it is also important to try to resolve issues. You know, the legislation does require you to um, try to look at settlement and, and, and resolve issues, especially if you're looking or you're in a position that you may have to bring a motion, an urgent motion or anything like that. Um, you should be able to note that you have made attempts to try to resolve issues ahead of time. Yeah. But I agree with Carolyn's points. Eliza, any thoughts? Everybody agrees with Carolyn. She's so convincing. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Carolyn too. See what I mean? <laughs> Well, let's go on the status quo and self-help. We talked about it a little bit, but what exactly do we mean by status quo? And um, what, how, why is notice important and what's self-help? Can you help with, with this, uh, Eliza? Yeah, absolutely. So seeing that our audience, most of you are family lawyers, uh, I assume a lot of you will know this, but I'll just give a high level overview for those that aren't familiar with the topic. The term status quo refers to the existing and established arrangements and routines that are in place for a child or children. And the guiding principle for matters that involve children is best interests of the child. And the concept of status quo holds an important consideration when assessing best interests of the child because status quo arrangements produces stability and continuity for kids, which is critical, as we all know. As it relates to school, an example is if your child or children are currently in public school, you want to now make the decision to put them in private Catholic school, the court will give some weight to status quo. It's not the only factor. And the ultimate decision will be based on a holistic assessment of best interests of the child, but it is one factor that's going to be considered. And in some instances, status quo can matter a lot, but in others, it can take a backseat to the ultimate decision. It just really depends on the facts and circumstances of a particular case. I know it's the age old lawyer <laughs> answer that depends on the facts and circumstances, but it is true when it relates to, to things like status quo. You should quo. not be allowed to say that anymore. I know. Because that's always our answer, right? I know. Uh, the uh, Another element to status quo is not just what's been going on with the kids, but also who's been making the decisions. That can be part of the status quo consideration. So if one parent is making or has made the decisions related to the child's education in the past, 
that'll be in another important aspect of status quo. Uh, however, all that being said, it doesn't mean that status quo cannot be changed. If it is shown that different arrangement would be better serve the child's best interest, then the courts will consider the evidence and changes in circumstances can be considered um, in, in terms of whether it's the right decision to deviate from status quo. Now, I'll shift over to notice. First thing I'll say is your behavior has consequences, uh, but it can also reflect really well on you. Providing enough notice shows that you're able to communicate and cooperate with the other parent. Give notice. Don't just give notice, give as much notice as possible. Why? Because you're co-parents. The courts put a lot of weight on a parent's ability to communicate. And if you're providing notice and communicating about major decisions like education, that shows that you're putting the best interests of the child at the forefront. And, and put it uh, in writing, put it in writing, right? Yeah, Email or something because yeah, the other person is going to say, you never told me anything. That's right. I'm going to yeah. get to methods of, of providing notice, but Russ jumped me to it. That's true. We always say, put it Sorry. in writing. Sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. I'm happy you did it. Um, but looking great in court and in front of a judge is awesome. But another really important benefit of open communication and collaboration between parents is avoiding unnecessary conflicts. Conflict is bad. Conflict is particularly bad for kids. It's pretty simple. We all know it to be true. And a simple gesture like giving notice and being communicative avoids more conflict in these situations. Um, so just overall notice, you're going to avoid disputes, you're going to avoid legal consequences like failure to provide notice if you are in the court process, failure to provide notice of significant changes like education can have consequences in court proceedings because the courts can look at a parent's failure to communicate and provide notice on a major thing like education as being against the child's best interest and will consider it when making parenting and decision-making orders. The other, the other factor in providing notice is that it will help maintain the stability that's ever important for children. By providing notice of changes in school arrangements, it gives both parents an opportunity to plan accordingly, which contributes to a smoother transition and ensuring that stability is maintained. And now back to Russ's point, how to give notice. It has to be clear, timely communication. Do it in writing. That could be by email, co-parenting apps, whatever method of written communication you use with your co-parent, give it in writing. And the last piece is self-help. Uh, I'll just give a quick note on self-help. Don't do it. Don't use self-help. Judges generally disapprove of self-help actions. It, Avoid it goes, utilizing- it goes, it goes badly when there's been self-help. The judge walks in upset already because- yes they've read the case and they're they're usually coming with guns guns ablazing right when there's been self-help absolutely avoid unilateral decision making without an agreement or order just don't do it it's going to end badly for everybody and it's not child focused it's not the right thing to do maintain status quo unless it's not in the child's best interest to do so behave yourself be courteous and considerate and child focused and that goes for lawyers and parents don't, the lawyer shouldn't engage in it either. Don't encourage unilateral decision-making. Don't encourage violating status quo unless it's in the child's best interest. 
behavior, credibility, and your actions are what the court has in front of them to make a decision. So, so don't, don't hurt yourself from making self-help uh, decisions. And don't, that's, fall, that's, don't fall in the trap. Some spouses will kind of push it, push the buttons and get a really nasty text message in response. And that's what shows up in court, right? But absolutely uh, great tips. And if you do give notice and the person doesn't respond, um, it's going to be weak argument for that person to come to court and say, well, I don't like this decision. Well, you're given notice and you had a chance to speak up earlier. So it could be a really effective tool. That's a great tip. Um, yeah, the other, I'll just say one more thing on that note. It's give, don't just give notice, but give as much notice as possible. Then we avoid the situations of having to bring an urgent motion. If the other parent knows plans are what you're proposing, then you have a time to negotiate it through instead of having to bring an urgent motion and going down that. The parents watching this at home are typing up their notice right now. Uh, Gia, what, what's your take on this uh, subject matter? You want to add anything? Yes, I actually do. I think it's really important. You know, Eliza, you talk about giving notice and oftentimes parents will say, they'll speculate about things that could possibly happen and why notice may not need to happen because they're worried that if I give notice, then the father may do X, Y, and Z. Um, take the child away or something like that. But just you have to remember that your evidence has to be grounded in something and it shouldn't just be speculative. Um, so, so that is something to keep in mind when you're thinking about not giving notice that, you know, like speculations that you may have about things that may possibly happen, it has to be grounded in something in order for you to, for your evidence to be supported. That's going to tie in with our next subject, but that's a great point. I've had lots of clients who are concerned, especially when there's no agreement and order in place. There's a status quo that um, they're, the the other parent's going to take the child for a visit and not return them, right? And so you get that fear too. Uh, just before we move on, though, Carolyn, did you want to add anything to this? No, I think that was an excellent summary, Lisa. Um... Yeah, nothing to add. <laughs> All right, so urgent motions. We're going to move over to you, Gio. We've given our notice or we've done self-help or um, status quo is not working for whatever particular reason. Uh, what's yeah. an urgent motion? What's the task? What do we need to know? Sure. So urgent motions are just one of the tools available to litigants that's available in the family law rules to have your matter um, before. And, and it's to have your matter before a judge um, before a case conference is dealt is held to deal with the substantive substantive issues and 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 that the authority for the urgent motions it's under Rule fourteen sub four point two of the Family Law Rules and um, and it specifically says that you are able to bring an urgent motion if there is a situation of urgency or hardship um, a case conference is not required or there is some other reason in the interest of justice and so. When we look at urgency or hardship, what does that mean? So generally that contemplates abduction, threats of harm to you or your child or your children or dire financial circumstances. So therefore, urgent motion is not a run-of-the-mill motion. It's, it's somewhat of a high threshold and you should be very mindful um, when you are utilizing this tool. Um, and so they may be brought with notice or they may be brought without notice and they're generally for a temporary order. 
And in both situations, because I know that we're dealing with a lot of lawyers here, but for, for those who are not, you will need to prepare um, your evidence in the format of an affidavit and um, a form 14 called a notice of motion. And in that notice of motion, you list the orders that you're asking the court to make. But in terms of the evidence that you will prepare in your affidavit, you are to specifically state why and give evidence why this isn't why the matter is urgent. Um, detail your concerns. Um, show why you can't wait for a case conference, which then means that before you determine that you have to you need an urgent motion, you should be contacting the court to find out when the next case conference can happen because you may not you may not need to bring an urgent motion, and. And so you have to be very concise and, and succinct in your evidence to, to show that what the urgency is and why it cannot wait. Um, and one of the things I want to touch on, because um, Eliza talked about um, notice, is those motions where you're not providing notice. So these are called <clears throat> ex parte motions. And so you're not providing notice to the other person, essentially. With these motions, you have to really have a good reason why you're not serving the other party. And these may be cases such as, you know, if the other party were to find out that you're bringing this motion, there is an immediate risk that that person may seriously harm your child or leave with the child. Um, and again, it cannot be speculative. It really should be grounded in something concrete. Um, or they may leave, leave the country with the child. Um, now, there are certain tips that you, I would recommend that you be mindful of is that you check the practice direction of the court that you're going to or the jurisdiction. So for example, in Central West, we're in, so in Brampton, um, the practice directions require that you file your motion, um, that, it, that it be reviewed by a judge to determine whether or not it is going to be urgent. So you don't just file it and then you get a date. It's going to be reviewed by a judge to determine whether or not it's going to be accepted. Similarly, in the East, so for example, I had a recent situation where, um, and this was in Peterborough Court, where my client was attempting significantly to have contact with his one-year-old child, and we made a lot of um, efforts to communicate with the child's mother to be able to arrange um, parenting time, and we were very creative in how that could happen, and she consistently refused. Um, and because of the age of the child and uh, the behaviors that we were noticing from the mother, we filed an urgent motion and we had an urgent case conference that the judge had an urgent case conference generally scheduled for about 15 minutes to really determine whether or not is in fact um, eligible to be considered an urgent motion. And in that particular case, we were able to have a motion scheduled. So. Be very mindful. I would recommend that you check the practice directions of each uh, jurisdiction and um, utilize it as a tool that's available to you and you utilize it wisely. That's great. Just uh, a few quick points. The um, for ex parte motions, you should include all the information available, including facts that might not help your case because you're an officer of the court and the judge, you're asking the judge to make an exceptional order which is one on without notice. And I was before Justice Timms in Oshawa um, and it was an urgent motion. He basically told me, and every judge is different. 
for him to grant relief, the child basically has to be boarding a plane, right? <laughs> that, that's sort of the level of urgency. Otherwise, there's other tools you could do. You could do uh, an urgent case conference, um, things of this nature. So it's a high, high test, uh, but thank you for that. And I just note that Shannon put in the chat box, just want to remind our audience, this program has been accredited uh, by the Law Society of Ontario for one hour of professional con professionalism content. Um, but let's go to the voice of the child. We had a question that came in. Uh, maybe I'll get to it afterwards, but it's basically at what point does a child have to say in parenting time and decision-making? But so we're going to divide this up. I think, Carolyn, you're going to do voice of the child, and then, then we're going to move back to GA for best interests. Sounds good. So I'll start with the voice of the child. Um, so when we're talking about the voice of the child, we're really talking about, you know, what are the views and preferences of, of what a child? And typically when we get a voice of the child, that comes by way of a report. Um, the report, usually it's just very limited. It's only talking about the wishes of the child and it's, it can be very helpful to the parents or the lawyers, the judges, because it will give us an idea of, you know, what this child wants in their life and what is the child's uh, preferences. And it can be on, you know, any particular issue, but it could be very helpful for um, the school issue. When they're doing the report, it's usually uh, one professional um, that does it. It's typically, they're a mental health professional. Um, they usually have, you know, at a minimum one interview um, with a child. Typically, it's more than that. And their sole purpose is really just to obtain um, uh, the views and preferences of the child. This can be done like either through publicly funded. Um, some people know the abbreviation OCL, which is the Office of the Children's Lawyer, which is basically through the Ministry of Attorney General, or um, the parents can pay privately um, and they can figure out a way how to do that. They can pay privately to have it, um, to have a voice of the child report done. The importance of the voice of the child report is that it does help uh, speak to what are the best interests of the child. And I know we're going to speak about that a little later, but one of the factors um, when assessing the best interests of the child is looking at what are their views and preferences are. Um, I find these reports are, are, for the most part, they're, they're very helpful. Um, first of all, because the child, uh, you know, feels that they've been heard, they feel like their parents are listening to them. Um, it helps parents plan um, and also helps them, I think, to be more successful as, as co-parenters because um, co-parents rather is as the child has been involved in decisions. Um, some consideration for the voice of the child report is that uh, age is typically very important. Um, so I think the youngest personally I've done was the child report, I think was about a nine-year-old child. Um, and that child was, uh, quite mature, um, for their age. I would say that there's not really a threshold for age. I, I think you just have to keep in mind it's case by case. Um, and it really is trying to assess the unique needs of that particular child. Um, so I don't know, maybe someone else has had someone younger, but I think nine around just recent, a fresh nine-year-old was around the youngest that I've had. Um, and I do find them very particularly helpful to, to resolve uh, issues without 
proceeding in litigation, even when it's outside of litigation, I've used them in um, just, you know, doing separation agreements or in collaborative files as well. Yeah, I agree. We've had some tough ones where, you know, it was in a collaborative setting and the child confirmed that they didn't want to, they didn't agree with one parent. They wanted to go live with the other parent. And it was heartbreaking, right, for that one parent. And um, but credit to the parents, they respected the child's wish and settled the case. Uh, but it can be very effective. Uh, best interest of the child, Gia. What do we want to be considering? Yes, I have quite a bit to say on it because I I find it such a important topic and certain an important issue for all for litigators really and for parents. Um, so it is the primary legal test used to determine child-centered disputes around decision-making authority and parenting time. And, um, and that's because the, the analysis always has to be taken from the lens of the child. So in our practice, there's, uh, there are three primary pieces of legislation that are engaged in the best interest of the child analysis. And they are the Children's Law Reform Act, the Divorce Act, and for those of us who practice child protection, the Child Youth and Family Services Act. Um, so section 24 of the Children's Law Reform Act specifically states that in making a parenting order or contact with respect to a child, the court shall only take into account the best interest of the child in accordance with the section. And it, it, it lists the, um, the factors that are to be considered. And similarly, section 16 of the Divorce Act also notes that the court shall, again, it's a must, take into consideration only the best interest of the child of the marriage in making a parenting order or a contact order. And so that's really the test. And a lot of the factors, the factors in the Children's Law Reform Act and the factors in the Divorce Act, they, they mirror each other. Just some quick factors for you to note are, you know, considering the child's needs, giving their, their age, the stage of development and the needs of the child for stability with the family considering the nature and the strength of the child's relationship with each parent, I, I do find that that is often overlooked, um, the need to maintain that connection with that, with that family member or that parent, um, considering each parent's willingness to support the development and maintenance of the child's relationship with the other parent. So this is, you know, that's where the importance of parenting time comes in. Um, and then when parents sort of struggle with uh, seeing that they have an issue, with parenting time happening for, for whatever reason, you know, being able to think about alternative ways in which the parenting time can still happen, but still maintain or mitigate the concerns that they may have. Um, so all of these enumerated factors are really geared towards providing some consistency and clarity and to really help and guide parents and lawyers and courts in resolving this, these disputes through a child-focused manner. And, and when we are engaged in assessing the child's best interest, the weight that should be accorded to each factor will vary depending on the unique features of each child in the case. And so none of the factors carry more weight than the, than the other. Um, and it's really a holistic, a holistic analysis that happens depending on the circumstances of the child. With respect to child protection matters, the Child, Youth, and Family Services Act also stresses the best interests of the child um, heavily. It's actually a concept that's woven throughout the legislation, and, and it really should inform your practice at every stage of the proceeding. 
um, the Child, Youth, and Family Services Act specifically notes in its preamble that um, the paramount purpose of the act is to promote the best interest, protection, and well-being of the of the children. Um, and you will find at section 74.3 of the act the list of factors that are to be considered um, in doing your analysis of the best interest of the child. Um, they are similar to those factors that are in the Divorce Act and the Children's Law Reform Act, but there are um, ones that are specific to child protection, and, and that would include um, the looking at the proposed plan by the Society for the Child, um, the effects of the of the on the effects on the child of the delay in the disp disposition of the case. So there, there are some differences, but a lot of it are very similar. Um, so similar to the Children's Law Reform Act and the Divorce Act, the test for uh, parenting time um, or what's called access, it's still referred to as access in the Child, Youth and Family Services Act, the test is also best interest. Um, and, and in terms of final orders that the court can make with respect to children who are uh, before the court in child protection matters, again, the test is um, what's in the child's best interest. If um, the child, sorry, I have one more point. If the sure. child is actually First Nations, Inuit or, Inuit or Métis, and I feel that this is often overlooked, there is the federal legislation that also needs to be looked at and considered, and that is the Act Respecting First Nations, Inuit and Métis Children, Youth and Families. It also has a list of um, best interest uh, factors that need to be considered in, in doing your best interest analysis. And so for children who are, who identify either as First Nations, Inuit, or Métis, it's going to be a more expansive um, analysis because of that uh, federal legislation and the added components there. Um, there is additional elements or additional factors to be considered if there, is, if there is a relocation, if the issue is one of relocation. So the Divorce Act and the Children's Law Reform Act have additional factors to be considered. Um, they are um, at section 16.92 of the Divorce Act and section 39.4, subsection three of the Children's Law Reform Act. So those are things to, to be mindful of um, when you are dealing with relocation issues. Uh, so essentially, it is a very important um, concept and test, and it needs to look at um, be focused, child-focused and keeping that uh, lens always on what's best for the child uh, when dealing with these disputes. And there's several factors to consider under, and most of the legislation mirrors each other, right? But the factors are pretty much yes. the same. Right, very, very helpful. Sure. Thank you so much, Gia. So post-secondary expenses and child support during post-secondary, but let's go to a poll and see what our audience thinks. We had over 150 people register, lots of great questions coming in. Thank you, audience, please keep them coming in. How are special expenses, special and extraordinary expenses shared? And I just want to back up a little bit because we had a question that came in that was just on topic. So no real science here, but at what age does the child say have a say in parenting time and decision-making? Uh, I've got my opinion, but what would you say, Gia? What age do you think that um, they would get to have some input or... Yeah, um, I think Carolyn had touched on this where she, you know, in your experience, Carolyn, you had a, a child as young as nine. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there could be children as young as six who are able to verbalize um, 
concerns that they may have or wishes that they may have. And um, so I, I don't think that there's a specific age. I think children are, uh, depending on the, the developmental stage where they're at, are able to sort of verbalize things. And especially sometimes kids are caught in a royalty bind. And, you know, if they are at a, a particular stage where they're able to sort of verbalize what their wishes are, I, I don't know that there it is it is right or accurate to put an age, like a minimum age on, on that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We all know uh, 15 year olds who behave like nine year olds and nine year olds who are old souls and uh, are very quite mature. So I would, I think, you know, every child's different and I think you're right. Carolyn, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think um, it's really always important to just look at your particular circumstances. And, and, you know, the facts of that particular child or the circumstances. And I think at the end of the day, even when we're talking about the best interest of the child, it's a very unique um, analysis and a unique test. And so like often what I'll do is I will cut and paste the applicable, you know, part of the act into an email to, to the client. And I'll be like, this is what the judge is going to be looking at. Can you, you know, give me some feedback or, you know, what's your evidence or what's your comments on these heads of the test? Um, and I think that sort of just helps to turn their mind to understand like there's a purpose, there's a goal, <laughs> why we're writing these affidavits right. and, and why we're putting these things together in our materials. So, yeah, yeah I think it's just unique. Great comments. All right, let's see what our audience is thinking. So um, special and extraordinary expenses, 50-52%. Proportionate to the parent's income, 96%. I've got a sophisticated audience here. Um, and then uh, other 2%. So thank you, audience members. And usually it's proportional. Um, sometimes uh, we may see a third, a third, a third, where a child picks up a third if it's post-secondary. Um, but let's let's get into this. So let's talk about these expenses. Um, post-secondary expenses and child support during post-secondary education. So let's start with post-secondary expenses. Generally, Carolyn, um, it would be proportionate, but we want to consider whether the child qualifies for grants and loans and um, is working and can contribute, would you say? Yeah, so I think post-secondary expenses really, I try and do like a laundry list of what that would include. So you're going to have tuition, you'll have also residence or rent. Um, I don't even know kids buy books anymore, <laughs> um, but you know, books and then going through um, one, I think it's also still just sure it's reasonable and um, contribution is reasonable for the parents because you're assessing the parents' income um, initially first. And then whatever contributions the child is able to make. Right. And you're also looking at not just tuition, um, residence, some transportation, food, some clothing. It's more than just the actual college or university expense, right, Carolyn? Yeah. And I think it also depends, like, there's transportation. It could be traveling back and forth from home. Because um, arguably, someone might say, oh, transportation, if you're giving a child a vehicle to commute, maybe that's not typically a section seven expense um extraordinary expense right. so and i've had some judges say they even think cell phones are necessary expenses for kids going off to college and university but my experience with child support it depends where the child's residing right if they're residing at home 
then there's a good chance child support is going to be ordered to be paid. If there's a period of time where they go to the um, and live away from home, either in residence or get an apartment, oftentimes child support stops for those months and then those expenses are shared. So child may come home during the summer and for a period of time at the December break and then child support would start up for those particular months. Um, but everybody approaches it differently. Um, what's been your experience, Gia? Um, yeah, so I agree that what I have seen is that it would, the child support would uh, be suspended during the time of the care home. Yeah. Um, and then we restart or resume when they're back at school. Um, I did have a, a recent matter where, um, you know, the when we were looking at it, the courts did just, just sort of like added information. It's really about, there's an expectation on children to be able to um, contribute to their post-secondary education. Not fully, but just be able to contribute to an extent. Um, and so that's just like a, a something that was important to keep in mind um, when we were sort of looking at, you know, child support and um, expenses, section seven expenses. Right, we might have one more poll. What should the child's contribution be to post-secondary expense? So we have a bunch of options here. So let's see what our audience thinks. Um, and let's go to our audience question. So Eliza, I've got a question that came in. My ex is enrolling the child in four to five extracurriculars per, per child per year and is, ex and is expecting me to pay in full. Do I have a decision on what's being selected and what uh, activities the kids can participate in because it's hard on that particular parent financially? What would your take on that be? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I would, if you have an agreement in place, I would look to what the agreement says on the topic of extracurricular activities <clears throat> or a court order. But generally, one parent cannot simply enroll a child into four or five super expensive extracurricular activities and then slap a bill on the other parent and demand that they pay their proportionate share. So you would have to get consent for the activity, you let them know what you are proposing in terms of enrolling them in and the other parent can't unreasonably withhold consent but the activities also have to fall within the parent's means so if you can't afford it you can't expect the that parent to agree and be on the hook for multiple extracurricular costs so um the fun the the <laughs> the answer everyone hates is it depends but generally no, you can't, one parent can't just enroll a child into a bunch of super expensive extracurricular activities if it's not within your means to contribute to those. Yeah, I've seen some judges take the approach, well, the child was in swimming and hockey during the relationship. There's an expectation that's going to continue. Uh, but if you yeah. want to do additional activities that don't interfere with the other parent's time, then you take that expense on yourself. That's one approach I've seen the court take. Uh, Carolyn, any input on this? Yeah, I think it's also going to be analysis going back to our status quo, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, with the status yeah. quo um, during the relationship. Um, and also, uh, not to make it more complicated, but sometimes I have one parent trying to make an argument for undue hardship. And I think um, that typically is incredibly hard to make. Mm -hmm. However, if um, where maybe they have other children from a prior relationship or they've got uh, children 
after the relationship, but I do find that maybe they wouldn't qualify under undue hardship, but the court might make some consideration to that when they're looking at contribution to extracurricular um, expenses. So that might be something to consider as well if, um, if the payer has other you know, children or children to support. Um, maybe that would take precedent over extra curricular expenses above and beyond child support. Yeah, all right. Let's see what our audience thinks in terms of uh, these expenses. Um, all right, so a third, 7%, um, 9% getting materials from different source. It depends. The quick learners here, everybody's going to, it depends now. <laughs> so uh, very astute audience. Thank you for participating in that. So let's get to case studies and what some people would call war stories. You know spend a few minutes each just talking about cases that had an impact or that um, you think would benefit the audience. Uh, so Eliza, we've got you on the screen. You want to start? Sure. I actually have one that I'm dealing with now, and it's a motion to change uh, for support. And the other side, there's an adult child. Well, that's a contradictory statement, but there's an adult. And um, he, my client is currently, there's a court order in place to pay child support and extraordinary and section seven expenses. But the other side is refusing to give disclosure on what the child's doing in school in their post, post-secondary program. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of odd. They gave one screenshot of a transcript but they're, they're not cooperating in terms of providing material. I have no information on whether the child took a gap year and uh, I'm in the midst of it now. It's, it's not fun. So I would say to the lawyers <laughs> participating today is, is give the necessary, necessary disclosure. These, these cases on post-secondary and in particular are very, can be complex and all rely on the facts. And if we can't assess the facts, then we're stuck and we can't progress the matter. And we all want to avoid court whenever we can. So uh, yeah, that's my current war story, but leave it to the others to. All right. Um, Carolyn, you want to go next? Yeah, I just thinking about the preparing this, I was thinking, fortunately, I have settled everything. I haven't had a back to school motion in like 10 years. <laughs> Because um, <laughs> you're such a great advocate, nobody wants to go up again. I so proud of myself, but I do remember I did have the last one that I can recall doing. It was um, a dispute for, about enrollment for just regular public school or French immersion um, school. And so that was um, a very, it was very interesting motion to argue. And um, uh, the facts of that particular circumstance is one child was already enrolled in French immersion. Uh, one parent wanted uh, the younger child to join the elder child at the same school. The other parent was thinking, oh, the older child has struggled in French immersion. I don't, I think we made a mistake. <laughs> Let's um, uh, just, you know, go through the regular English stream public school uh, for the second child. So, Ultimately, the judge decided that um, the child should join their older sibling um, and the French immersion program. So 
Um, that was the last motion that I can think that I've argued about enrollment uh, just before back to school. And uh, it's actually reported. I think um, maybe we can provide the link after um, Shannon can assist us with doing that. We can provide the link for the re reported you, decision. Yeah, we'll include that in the show notes. Okay, Gia, your turn. And then I'm going to go to the teaser case that I started off with at the beginning. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is this case just came across my desk. Um, and it's in a very preliminary stage. It's got a father who um, has been co-parenting with his partner. They have two children. There is no separation agreement in place. They, they just had an informal agreement. And uh, the children are being homeschooled by both of them. So the arrangement is that the children would be with one parent for two weeks and two weeks on, two weeks off, essentially. And um, so now the mother has decided that she wants to enroll the children into uh, public school, but they do live a significant distance. So the parents live a significant distance apart. So it's like about a two hour drive between the two. So now what is happening if she were to do that, enroll the child, the children in public school, it would affect his parenting time, which he's used to. And um, he is concerned about them attending public school because when they were there before, they were not, they were residing primarily with mom and they were not in, attending school regularly. So it was affecting their um, education significantly in that way. And so uh, a lot of things are being engaged here, which is uh, decision-making, no, no proper, no proper um, uh, arrangement in place regarding, um, well, the status quo is that it was joint, joint decision-making, but now one is unilaterally trying to make decisions on our own. Um, the taking this, the kids out of um, that, well, the, the change in the distance, how it will affect parenting time if one, if the children were to be enrolled in school, because that means that the primary residence will be with mom. And, uh, and so ultimately what is in their best interest. So lots of things being engaged in very interesting case. Yeah, there must be some crazy stuff going on in Peterborough because we talked about that court a couple of times today, minus out of Peterborough. But this, this exact same time of the year, several years ago, Child's living with dad and the both families' roots, including mom's grandparents in, in um, Peterborough. Mom has the kids uh, for a summer visit in Alberta, doesn't return the kids and gets an order in Alberta saying the kids are going to remain there. We bring it on an urgent basis before uh, Justice Ingram and um, everything blows up, right? So and Ingram did the best he could to help this family. So uh, first thing he did was he, and it turned out, I got called in last minute. It turned out there was an existing Ontario court action from maybe two years ago uh, that, hadn't, that hadn't finalized. So there's an active court file. It just kind of went dormant. This is back when, you know, don't know if you remember you Dern Ting signy die, you know, without a date and it would just kind of disappear for a while. So Justice Ingram calls the Superior, or I guess, Court of King's Benches, or Queen's Bench at the time, in Alberta, and tries to get a hold of the judge who made the order out there. Uh, and we're in chambers, and he's calling through, and he gets ghosted. They don't pick up his, they don't take his call. And um, so we go back, we're going in and out of chambers as we're doing this. So we go back in the open court, and uh, the judge goes, Mr. Alexander, where are the children right now? He goes, well, they're uh, at home with the grandparents. And he orders me to have the children brought to court, which is the first time I've ever had that happen in 
15, 20 years, whatever my career was at that point. And then he takes the lunch break. So I said to my client, you know, you got to get your parents to bring the kids into court. And they're like, you know, nine and 12. And, you know, they're um, quite stressed. Obviously, they weren't expecting to go to court. Kids are in the front queue of the witness box. And then, um, and then uh, he goes to counsel to the mother. He goes, okay, well, I'm going to conduct the judicial interview. We're there on a return of a motion. We have, haven't case conferenced any of this, these issues. And the, um, the uh, mom's counsel says, rightly so, and I think I would agree with her, so we're not consenting to you conducting a judicial interview. Uh, it's not relieved us before the court. And, and uh, so the judge didn't do the interview that day. So, it's the second, so that's the second interesting thing that happened that's never happened before. A judge wants to do a judicial interview on the spot. And then, and so we have the judge calling the court, judge ordering me to bring the children to court, judge wanting to do an interview. So he goes, okay, I'm gonna order an access visit occur today in courtroom three, and it's gonna be supervised by my CSO. And this is the strangest thing. So that's never happened to me either. So four things, long story short, the kids stayed in Ontario, mom went back to Alberta and the case remained in this jurisdiction, but goes to show you never know what's going to happen when you take one of these cases to court, but we're approaching the hour. I want to bring Shannon back on. Thank you for sharing your stories. I'm sure we could spend an hour just talking about case examples. Shannon, can you get slip one or two questions in here quick? Yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much to Carolyn Dianaliza for joining us for this discussion today to share your experiences and insights. And thank you so much to our audience for your participation and sending in all your questions. We had a lot of participation today. Um, we're going to do our best to get through a couple before we log off here. Um, so a question came in from the audience. Does your firm go to court or strictly just do collaborative? Are you able to speak to this for us? Yeah, we try to settle things collaboratively because our clients usually end up with a better result and more satisfied with the process. But we do go to court all the time and we run trials, we run motions, contested hearings, uh, but we do the best we can to keep it out of the court system. Great question, Shannon. Thank you. Thank you. And just one last audience question here. How are post-secondary education costs calculated if one parent is unemployed? Lisa, what do you do? No money in no money in the bank. Well, they may have well, we'll see. They may be unemployed and have money. Yeah, we'll see about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it depends. Well yeah, it does depend. Um, there might be you have to look at things like whether that individual is underemployed or or in un, unemployed for reasons to evade paying support or expenses, or if there's a genuine reason like being on sick leave or a disability or some kind of grounds for for a valid reason to be unemployed. Um, sometimes there will be an imputation of income if there are not valid reasons for them to be unemployed. And they'll, the courts will look at the history of their employment and uh, degrees and certificates, et cetera. But yeah, it really does depend. It does depend. Well, there you go. What a great way to finish it off, Shannon. Classic. All right. Well, thank you again to all of our viewers for tuning in and to all of our speakers today. Mm -hmm.